0: When are we gonna talk about it? When are we gonna come together?
1: And like? Hello. Welcome to Let's Talk About It on WERU FM. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of Finding Our Voices, which can be found at findingourvoices.net. We are main survivors of domestic abuse, standing proud and speaking loud. He freaked out, and he smacked me in the face. I mean, I cried, he cried, and he was like, I've never done that before,
0: and of course I believed him. There are some days that were really good days, and you have fun with that person, and then they apologize, and nothing happens for two weeks, and they said that they were sorry, and you think that everything's going to be okay, and then it happens again.
1: Today, we are rerunning an episode from one year ago. Back then, Rebecca was putting the finishing touches on her illustrated book, referencing her experience of 10 years of captivity by the man she met when she was 17, seen through the eyes of a child. The book is also about healing from trauma through nature and art. Well, the book is out. It's called Road to After, and it is a masterpiece, both in words and also illustrations. Do yourself a favor and order this book. The Road to After, from your library or local bookstore. It is geared to young teens, but it will provide insight and inspiration to anyone older as well. Learn more about the book and Rebecca at RebeccaLowell.com. That's R-E-B-E-K-A-H-L-O-W-E-L-L.com. And look for Rebecca's Finding Our Voices poster as we get the new design up in downtown business windows. Bathrooms of restaurants and in changing rooms of boutiques all across Maine, starting with Sacco Biddeford. And you can see Rebecca's photo portrait and documentation of the abuse she and her children endured, along with the photo portraits of 42 other Maine survivors taken by me, Patricia McLean, at the University of Maine's Hutchinson Center in Belfast for the Finding Our Voices exhibit. Opening reception is next Thursday at 7 p.m and the exhibit runs through October. So Rebecca, um, thank you for joining me to talk about what you experienced and how you transcended it. Could we go to the beginning of when you met this person?
0: We can try. I feel like, so I've been gone eight years and sometimes details get fuzzy. Yeah. And it's probably a good thing. Yeah. So it was in 1999 and so I think that places me at 17 and we were at a wedding. I had a boyfriend at the time, someone I had dated. um, I think we were, you know, mostly four, about four years, three years. I don't know. We, we had been dating for a while. My cousin came over and my second cousin, he came over and he said, you know, he really wants you to dance with him. And I had noticed the whole night he had been staring at me from across the room, made me uncomfortable. I didn't get a good feeling. I just felt Mm. kind of watched
1: the whole night. Wow. Interesting. Right. That your first instinct was not a good one with him.
0: No. (laughs) And, um, you know, I kept saying, no, I have a boyfriend and my cousin was like, it's just a dance, do it for me. And I'm sure he meant, well. like I don't hold anybody, um, at fault because no one knew. Um, so anyway, I finally danced for them and, um, and then he wanted to go for a walk outside and we walked outside and somehow during the course of the walk, he talked me into the fact that the person I was with was the wrong person. And I remember him putting his leather, big, heavy leather jacket on me. Cause it was cold and he seemed so kind and protective and, um, Like he was taking me under his wing. Confusion, like tons and tons of confusion and just feeling like, wow, I have it all wrong. And, you know, this person has it right. Did he seem confident? Very, extremely confident. And almost to the point where it kind of made you shudder. Tell me how it proceeded and tell me
1: about any red flags you had along the way.
0: Well, so it took four years before I finally agreed to date him. Before you even agreed to date him. Yep. He pursued me for four years. And I think it was his graduation. He had a Corvette that he had built himself.
1: Were you impressed with that?
0: (sighs) Yes and no. Like fancy things never really impressed me. Um, Material things don't really impress me. I love nature. So not really, but the way that he drove on the way there scared me so much to the point that I asked to get a ride home with someone else at graduation because oh, wow. there was a family there that I did know. And I said, I really don't feel safe driving home with him. He flew, he flew on curved roads and just, it really scared me. Wow. Um, so I drove home with someone else and he never dropped that. I mean, all the 10 years we were married, he never dropped that.
1: You never dropped the fact that you drove home with someone else? Yeah. that was like assorted. Absolutely typical. You know, Both those things are typical.
0: <laughs> what is it about driving
1: fast? I think it's, a, it's part of the control because you're captive. Uh-huh. And, um, and then also the fact that they never drop something that's not even worth even mentioning to begin with.
0: I did go to his prom. We did not have fun. <laughs> it was, he was, he was always so serious. I was scared stiff, but I felt like I had to go. I felt like I couldn't say no even before we were officially dating.
1: So then you start dating him when you're 21. Yes.
0: Uh, Let's see. Well, we got, we got married. I was 21. So I must've started dating him when I was 20 and it was a very short um, time that we were dating before we were engaged and then married. It was like so sudden.
1: What were the red flags while you were dating? him? assuming there were, there were them.
0: Um, so one, one time that really sticks out to me. So he used to, he changed, basically changed the way that I dressed, um, changed where I went. I couldn't go to lunch with my mom anymore. I couldn't go anywhere without him. And it was all like, oh, you know, why would we want to do anything fun without each other? So we should just do everything together. So I didn't go to like I I had a friend that we used to go to a coffee place in Portland just to have coffee and hang out two two girls catching up that stopped um, you know and then even lunch with my own mother we didn't go out anymore um, my mom used to like to go to places like Panera Bread or you know somewhere like a cute little cafe and we stopped doing that but this one time that really sticks out to me as a red flag. I think at this point we were already engaged and he used to say that I didn't dress nice enough for him when he was coming to pick me up. First of all, he used to make me wait hours while he got ready. He'd say he was going to be there at a certain time, but he'd always be late. Power.
1: Anything that's power? Just make, making you Yeah. Wait?
0: Yeah. Making you wait and like a puppy dog, oh, you know, yeah. waiting for them to come pick you up. And you have to be ready, even though you don't know what time they're actually going to get there. You have to be ready and standing there and watching the driveway, because if you're not out in the driveway, the second they pull in, they accuse you of not really being excited to see them. So he, pull, he pulls up and I'm wearing a skirt because he liked long skirts. So I changed the way that I dressed. I was never someone who dressed dressy all the time. I mean, look at me now. I'm in like this buffalo plaid wrap. Like I like being comfy, and I like being, I like feeling grounded. And so, yeah, but also, wearing, you're you
1: know, you're an you're an artist, so you have whatever way you dress is ex-
0: expression. It was yourself. an expression, exactly. I used to like to dress colorful, maybe a little unique. Um, it was kind of fun, you know. And so I dressed, and I learned very quickly how to behave and how to dress based on his treatment of me. Like his approval. Like I always wanted his approval. I don't know why. I didn't really want it. It it was just this weird thing that happens. So I had on a long skirt and a and a shirt that had like a scoop, a scoop neck. Nothing revealing, just a scoop neck. And he pulls up and he yells at me and accuses me of trying to dress for the other people we were going to see cuz we were going go to go the mall or something. And he said, I was just trying to make men look at me. And he, my parents have a really long driveway, like 800 feet or something. And he burnt rubber, like with his, he had a huge diesel truck at this point. And he burnt rubber when he, he all the way down the driveway. And when he left and he left me standing there in the driveway, wondering what just happened, because I thought I was dressing for what he had just said only days before of an outfit he would like. And then he left me standing there and I don't remember the words. I have journals. I have 18 journals. So I'm sure I journaled about this experience. And I just remember my mom even seeing something at that point, you know, just like, what was that? But there was just always drama. There was always something to poke at, to pick at, to take apart something I did wrong, something I wasn't doing right. Something. And
1: look at the unpredictability. You, you do what you think you're led to believe is going to make him happy, but you, even that.
0: Yeah. Is not going to make him happy. No, no, you never could.
1: But you remember anybody around you sort of caution, cautioning you about Yes,
0: that friend that I used to go for coffee with. Um, she didn't have a good feeling about it. She was in my wedding for me, but at one point she shared with me, she didn't support it. I think my bridesmaids I actually think all three of my bridesmaids were kind of like, are you sure you want to do this? And the pastor that actually married us had shared reservations.
1: But do you think that that was already too late because you were on the momentum of getting married? And it would yeah.
0: I, long I long couldn't long. back out at that point. I, Honestly, if I'm being completely honest, I don't think that I had, I tried to say no for four years, but I think I knew the night that I met him, I was sunk. Like I, I had just this, like, so all through art school, I painted these images, mostly self-portraits. And one of them was like me drowning because I was studying illustration at Rhode Island School of Design. While I was at art school, I was outwardly trying to express something like a cry for help, but I didn't know that's what I was doing. Right. If I look back now at the images I was creating. There was one of me being like on puppet strings. Another one where my hands are tied and there's a butterfly image. I was obsessed with butterflies all through high school, and I still love them. And when we were married, it was like, I was not allowed to love butterflies. The friends that had a bad feeling I was cut off from. So it was like, I could no longer have friends. So at this point I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. And I'm sure that was intentional. So I was brought up in a, in a home where, you know, it was a very, um, encouraged to have like a traditional, like find a husband that provides for you and not, in any way that was ill intent like my parents have always had the best intentions and i know my parents only wanted the best for me but that was sort of the the upbringing you know was find find a husband who will provide for you and take care of you um and i remember that being one of the key features about him is he seemed to be like a quote you know good provider mm. um spoiler alert he was not <laughs> <laughs> and I was still wow. not allowed to work, but we were left scraping for pennies, you know, and our homes were wow. closed on. And
1: so let's move on to the marriage then. And could you talk about how it proceeded in the marriage? If I'm assuming it just got worse and worse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So basically it's almost like a protective hug. Like I've got you don't worry, like turned into uh, you're not going anywhere, mm. you know? So it's like, what's. What starts out as a hug turns into a hold, mm-hmm. a confining hold. Mm-hmm. And it did. And I could not leave the house. I actually from the point that we started dating, I did not go anywhere without him. At least a dozen years. If I was out in public, I was accompanied by him. Um, we're talking like no bank drive-throughs, no um, go pick up something at the store. No, like one time I worked when I was working for his mom, when we were living at his parents' house, I was her employee, um, for some, for a whole business. And she had sent me in the store to pick up something. And I had specific directions, you know, of what to do, uh, only go to the checkout with a female, you know, and Wait,
1: he told you that.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> she didn't. Was like, my
1: mother didn't. It
0: was him. No, it was him. It was if you're doing this, because my mom's hiring you. So he's like, I can't really like I don't I don't know what to do. He didn't want me going, but she really needed something at the store. So she sent me and I was to go there and back. And I was to only go to check out with a female. Like I couldn't talk to any guys.
1: You know what this you know <laughs> what this reminds me of? It reminds me of those stories of these young girls who are kidnapped and kept in the basement you know what I'm talking about yeah and and they're they're held for like 10 years
0: that way he was actually charged with kidnapping that was the law that they used against him um uh felony kidnapping
1: how soon did you maybe get this awareness that this was like criminal what he was doing to you
0: um not until a few weeks after I left like The whole time I was there.
1: Did it normalize? Did it become normalized to you?
0: Yes and no. I became numb. I became, I just survived. I did what he wanted. You know, when I left, I had two little girls. They were four and six. And I did everything I could to make life smooth for them.
1: Could we go back a little bit and talk about the steps that he took maybe or that, that, that brought you down to that point? like the different steps and things that you might remember happening along the way.
0: All right. So I was in Providence finishing school. We were married. We had a one room, like 16 square foot apartment. I could go to school and come back. And that was it. As soon as my class, it's class requirements were done. Not even like, I didn't even get to go to my last semester at school because I had enough credits to be done. So I didn't get to register for my final semester where I could have taken advantage of more education because technically I was still a matriculating student and he made me finish early because he didn't want me leaving anymore. It was like, you got your requirements, you're done. So I graduated basically a semester early because of him. And so at that point, the first place where I was held was that 16 square foot apartment, like one room that we had a couch that became a fold-out bed. And if we were sitting in the couch, we could like reach over and touch the kitchen countertop. Like it was that small. So the first place where I couldn't go anywhere was there. And his reason then was because it was Providence. And because I was a girl that shouldn't be alone out in Providence. Like that movie Room or that book, you know, the book Room that was turned into a movie. Yes. It was a lot like that. Maybe a little bit more broad because we had a house that we were stuck in and we could play in the yard. But so we weren't exactly confined to one single room. But when I was in Providence, I couldn't go outside in the yard. It was a city, you know, I wasn't allowed out. I remember asking him to take me outside and he would walk me around the block like a puppy dog at night. That's how I got outside when we were in Providence. I just remember temper temper tantrums flaring to the point where like I saw veins popping out on his head. And one time he had a bowl of popcorn and he squeezed it so hard, the ceramic bowl broke and the popcorn went everywhere. And just so many things that basically turn you into um, someone who's afraid to move a muscle. You know, it's like I you learn, you learn so fast, you become conditioned. And so even though I knew it was wrong, I was too afraid to say anything or do anything. And I think I started shutting out my intuition, my, whatever my gut was telling me, I started shutting it out and I really lost touch with myself and who I was. And so that was the first place I was stuck. And then we moved to an attic apartment also in Providence because he continued working for someone there doing carpentry. And it didn't have uh, a sink, it didn't have a kitchen sink. So I remember having to wash dishes in the bathtub. Um, I miscarried twins there um, up in the attic and I was by myself. Um, was there
1: anything to do with, do you think it was something to do with the conditions that you were living
0: in? I think it was the emotional toll, you know, the emotional yes. stress.
1: What was his behavior when that happened to you?
0: He shaved his head at, in like morning, he, he was sad because he wanted children. I was afraid. He used to accuse me of not wanting children. I wanted children my whole life. I was afraid to have children with him (laughs) because it was just like, these poor babies are going to have the same life I have. So at one point he even said it was because I didn't want them enough. You know, and he was completely cold towards me, but he was mourning the fact that he lost his um, line, (laughs) you know, his name, you know, it it was about ownership, right? Just even, um, you know, I don't think he was capable of love. I think, I think he was capable of wanting and of that feeling of possession and desire but I don't think he was capable of actual love.
1: Was he a was he a neat freak?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, and this is such a conflicting thing because he was a neat freak, yet everything, every place we ever lived in was unfinished. But he's a carpenter, isn't he? Yeah. But he told me I didn't deserve a finished home. He said that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So every place that we lived in, almost as soon as we got there, he would do something to like renovate and then never he would gut it or like do the demolition part, but never fix it up. So the house that we lived in um, had a hole in the ceiling because he took out the chimney that went through the middle of the house and he never put anything back.
1: And how about the kids? Like, did they have any play dates or were there in preschool or anything like that?
0: Nope. I taught them how to read. I made little flashcards and taught them their alphabet and how to read. Um, I still have those flashcards. So everything they know, everything that they like knew of the world, like at that point was just from interacting with me. So even to this day, like we have a hard time separating. We so still pay for so much we, in our daily life. There's so much that we still pay for, you know, that things that just won't go away. You just find a way to live regardless, but they don't go away.
1: Tell me about when he was went left during the day and went to work. What what kept you in the house then?
0: Fear. Did he say
1: you cannot leave your house while at work? He he'd let you know that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I would work out. I would um, journal. I would make sure the house was really clean because working out like I had to stay fit. So I would spend a few hours doing a workout. Um, the house had to be clean. I would make sure dinner was ready when he got home. I didn't do grocery shopping. He did all that. So like, I really, there was nowhere for me to go. I don't know if you've seen the movie Tangled, you know, Rapunzel, (laughs) all the things that she does during a day to keep busy. That was like my life basically,
1: you know, did you remember any good times with him?
0: (sighs) Outwardly, they would have looked like it. And I was just afraid the whole time. So I could pretend very well. I could. And um, like he would try to do things that were fun, like go four wheeling, but it would scare me because he would drive recklessly.
1: And if you complained about it, he'd probably made it sound like you didn't want it. You I
0: was. A stick to have in fun. The yep. Yep. Like he would pop wheelies on a four wheeler. It's like, who wants to do that? Because all I could picture was the four wheeler falling backwards on us, you know?
1: But you're the killjoy because you're not. Yeah, Yeah.
0: like his, his idea of fun always meant I got hurt. Could we talk about the kids, how it changed when they came? So both girls were born at home. And right after I had each of them, I was down to like 125. And the midwives were like, we're really worried that you got so thin so fast, like that you lost all your baby weight, like instantly. And at the same time, he's telling me I need to lose weight. And what was he like as a father? No one could have special moments with them. So the whole time that we would be visiting, he would be holding the child. And if someone held the baby, he was hovering. He like, he was very, very possessive and also risky, like very daring. Our first baby. um, So I mentioned he had a diesel truck. He would go out and like, her around the yard or work on the truck. He always did his own mechanic stuff. He was super smart, really, really smart. And she was just a few months old and had just started sitting up. And as soon as he got home from work, you know, he demanded her and he put her on, um, the seat to his diesel truck. And then, so we're talking like probably three feet, four feet off the ground. Like, cause this was a raised bed. I mean, a, a not raised bed, you know, when they put a lift kit on the truck, like he always put stuff on his truck. He put so much money into it. And she fell out because he just was like, he was risky. You know, he would just be like, she's fine. Like you worry too much. Like, so he would do things that put you on edge just to show the power of being like invincible, you know? And she fell out and we had a gravel driveway and she was just a few months old and her nose got a, like skin came off like a, almost like a rug burn, but a driveway burn, you know? Did
1: you say anything to him at that, when he, when that happened? Do you remember like lashing out at him in any way about that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember becoming like a mama bear and that didn't go well at all. <laughs> I just remember him always trying to put the girls in the middle of a fight and making them choose. And I remember just a few months before we started leaving He had gotten her to say stuff without even telling her what to say, just the way like, mama, you're wrong. Mama, daddy's right. You need to listen to daddy.
1: I do. Wow. What was that like for you to have her say that?
0: I was really scared. I was really scared because I started feeling like he was taking away who she was. Like what had happened to me, I was seeing it happen before my eyes to my six-year-old. One of the scariest things, and this is what how ha- what pushed me to leave, is that um, he had convinced himself and had convinced her that he was going to fix a cavity for her. He was not a dentist, and he had convinced himself that he could learn how to fix a cavity in a six-year-old. And he had started buying the equipment to do it. Part of what got entered into evidence was an actual like drill handpiece because he had bought it. And his next thing was going to be like the air hose and the compressors. And like he was, he was researching it and he was going to do it. And that is what it took to push me over the edge to leave because we had arguments about it. There was a restaurant that he brought it up in that I will never be able to step foot in again. You know, because that conversation was held in the public because he knew I couldn't pitch a fit, you know, so he would bring up stuff where people were watching. And then if I had a problem, I was the one making the scene, you know, so he would bring up stuff in an environment where you really were kind of stuck, you know, Um, and I remember actually bringing it up with his mom, with his family, and we were standing in his family's kitchen. And she was even trying to tell him, you can't do this. Like, you can't do that. And I remember him taking a big fat phone book, you know, like huge yellow pages and slamming it on the countertop and saying, if I'm going to fix my daughter's teeth, I'm going to fix my daughter's teeth and no one's going to stop me. And I feel like that phone book slam was my moment where I thought, then we're gone. We're just gone. And I'm done. Like at that point, I was not going to stay for any reason. And that was the moment where I had made my decision and I started taking steps to go.
1: Hello, you are listening to Let's Talk About It, conversations with survivors of domestic abuse. With me, Patricia McLean, founder, president of Finding Our Voices, which you can find at findingourvoices.net. Let's return now to our conversation with Rebecca, an illustrator in Southern Maine.
0: I, I think I started telling my parents and my mom and I had a secret way to communicate. If we went to go visit at their house, we had a spot in their bathroom closet where she would Give me supplies. One was a paid phone, like a secret phone, so I could make phone calls that weren't gonna show up on his phone bill because
1: you had no money of your own.
0: No, I had no money.
1: He kept all. you He kept you penniless, is that right? Yep,
0: yeah, I would even sell things on eBay so I could like buy their car seat, you know, like I would look through my things and be like, what can I sell?
1: Were you making any money of your own in all this time?
0: No, I was not allowed to. So I had a degree. And, um, I had a bachelor of fine arts in illustration and my dream was always to publish children's books to write and illustrate for children. And I was not allowed to pursue that dream.
1: So let's talk about that just for a little bit. Tell me about how you did or did not practice your art during the marriage and how he influenced that.
0: Uh, So one thing I did was journal, because I'm also a writer, I just have to write, I have to express in thought in the written word. And so I would journal and hide it, or I would write poems and hide it. Um, So I have a stack of journals, that's like two and a half feet tall, my mom would gift me journals. And then I would hide them in, um, like between sheets and blankets in the closets. So I'm a duck stamp artist. And in 2011, two years before I left, I actually won the main duck stamp contest the fir- for the first time, but I was not allowed to be there. Like we weren't there when I won. I got a phone call saying I had won. Um, and I, you know, I did make that painting while I was in that situation, but I would only paint when he wasn't home. And I would pick up as soon as I could because he hated that I painted in fact, one time he told me, "Why do you paint? It doesn't make me love you more." Anything that took away from his attention or affection for him, like if it didn't serve him, it wasn't worth me doing. You know, so. I, I can relate to that because I actually
1: did a couple of books while I was married to him. But I would have to get up at like I remember setting my alarm for like two thirty in the morning because I'd have to work until he woke up. Uh-huh. And as soon as he woke up at like seven, it was done. Oh yeah. And even when we had a house in California and um, I wanted to do some work there and I remember him getting so angry because he, I just needed to be lying by the pool in my bikini. So you did the duck thing and, and, and uh, the duck paint, was it a painting that you submitted?
0: Yes. And that's a
1: big honor, but he didn't, you didn't get any nice words from him about that, getting the prize.
0: He was happy. Like, I remember the phone call coming in and, and he thought it was great. Um, (laughs) but I couldn't do anything about it. It was like, you know, I, I didn't have, I may have had a website at that point. Like I may have been trying to work, but like, I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't meet with anyone. I couldn't. So back then, some of the ways that like, if you wanted to submit your work as a children's author, you'd have to have like meetings with art directors or editors or agents. And I couldn't, you know? So, so it was like, I I had all this ambition and I couldn't do anything with it. I felt like a dream had died. Like, and I remember at one point, I just accepted that this was going to be my life.
1: Looking back, right, the door's there, you know, like we're not in a cage, you know, but so we can really leave, like we can open the door and leave. But psychologically, I remember, I just thought there was no way out. And was it the same for you? Like you you just felt like there was no way out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just felt like it's impossible. And I actually have a friend who, um, we're still in touch now, but we weren't like, so the whole 10 years that I was married, like, I didn't really talk to her. And then one day we reconnected. She ended up planting the seed for me. She ended up saying, it doesn't have to be this way. And I mean, just the way she said, you don't have to accept this. Like the way that she said it did something to me to help me be like, what? Like I have a choice, you know, like this doesn't have to be my life. I can do something about it. Like, and I think it just got my wheels turning. What do you
1: think the difference between saying to a woman, you can leave and the difference between that being victim blaming and woman empowering.
0: Um. Yeah, I didn't feel like she blamed me at all for anything. I felt like she was saying, like, you can do something about this if you want to. And it was very empowering. And so
1: do you think that message in general for finding our voices and for you as a survivor to say to other women who are in it, You can leave. Do you think that is empowering or a victim blaming suggestion?
0: I think it's empowering. I think when said with the right intention and the right tone, and saying in a way too that is like when you are ready, like when it's your own terms, not that you have to do anything right now, but just tuck that thought away, you know, that you can do something about this. Yes. And reach out. Yes. You know, and I, so after I left, you know, I had people kind of be like, why did you, not everybody, a select few, but why did you stay or why did it take you so long to leave? Or, um, you know, why didn't you do something sooner? And I may have died if I did something sooner, I wasn't in the situation. I wasn't in my own mindset to be able to be strong enough to do anything. I remember many people being at the house, getting us out. And I made a call just after he left for work that alerted this group that was waiting for us miles down the road and said, okay, he's gone. You can come. But I called right back and said, don't come. I can't do this. And it was like, we're coming. (laughs) And so even at that point, I don't know that I had it in me myself, but I had a support team. And I know that that's not the way for everybody. And I feel like that's probably one of the number one reasons that women don't get out is because they don't have people who believe them, a support team, people that they can run to and say, hide me. You know, you need that. And you can still do it without immediate family though because your support team doesn't have to be relatives there are groups there are people who want to help and like caring unlimited for one you can google their website in a way that has it like hidden in a search engine and they have a 24 hour hotline you know there are they want to help there are people who want to help so your support team can be anybody that wants to help you and I know a lot of people think like when you're in that situation, it's hard to imagine anyone would care about you. It's hard to imagine. It's still hard for me to accept compliments or to accept nice things. Like I, I, if I see like kindness, like acts of kindness, like I choke up someone the other day, I was at Duncan. I get to pay and they say, you're all set. The person in front of you paid for your order. And I just can't stop thinking about that. It's just like, you know, that person didn't know me. What, what were they doing? That was so nice, <laughs> you know, and I don't know. It's just, so when you're in that situation, it's hard to think of something kind being done to you because you're in such a hostile environment all the time that you can't imagine someone wants to be nice, but they do. They want to help. And that
1: you deserve that, that you deserve the kindness. Yeah. You deserve, yeah.
0: Yeah. Like, I think it's, it's hard. It's hard to take because you're so used to it. I don't know if you've ever seen that video of, um, rescue puppies. Like there are some beagles that have been their lab dogs and they've been in crates their whole life. And when they're finally let out to the grass, they go right back in their crates. That is, that's a hard, it's like, there's something on YouTube Uh, beagles touching grass for the first time and they don't know what to do and they run back in their crates. And that's exactly what I felt like when I left, you know, is that I, my mom said that I stayed up in a bedroom at their house for two weeks before I even came downstairs, but I was confined for 10 years. So I couldn't, I didn't know what to do with the world.
1: Could you tell me about the whole justice and accountability piece?
0: So when we left, he was taken straight to jail. And I did not see that coming. I don't know why I didn't see that coming. We had a dog and it was really his dog. And I remember, um, you know, I wanted to take the dog with us. And we couldn't, you know, because we didn't have a place for him. My dad felt really bad, like he didn't have a place. And this dog was kind of a Houdini. He was always trying to get out. And I think back to how ironic, you know, the dog was the one trying to get away that even the dog didn't want to be there, (laughs) you know, poor, I, I still miss him and I feel bad and I think about him a lot. But so I remember thinking, okay, we have to leave, but the Mac, that was his name, like Mac will be fine because he's coming home and he'll feed and water him. Like I would, I did not see the arrest coming. And so he was taken straight to jail. He was indicted. He was, there was no bail. Like he, I got a PFA instantly. He was indicted. um, I think it took a few weeks later on eight different things, eight charges. The state police did an excellent job with the indictment and the whole, for the whole time, the whole case, the state police was excellent. Um, I'm really, really grateful for, for how much they helped. And, um, when it came time to the trial, the details of what stuck are kind of fuzzy because I know he didn't get charged on all eight counts. Um, one of the biggest things, so it was a two day trial. I testified for a total of seven hours spread out over two days at, in Alfred at, um, I think that's called the superior court. Correct. Not like for you to testify.
1: Did you watch he
0: was, he was sitting right across from me? So that was a little tough. He was in the room. Um, yeah, it it was hard. But at the same time, I felt like I finally got to say all those things that I wanted to say, and he couldn't do anything about it. Right. He had to sit there and
1: yeah. take it. And you felt safe talking because you were in a courtroom.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the tables were turned a little bit. It was right. like I'm not the prisoner anymore.
1: I felt the same way when I, uh, at his sentencing, when I got to say the victim statement, there was something so amazing about, and the judge kept saying, stop, looking! don't, do not look at the uh, defendant, look at me. But I just kept wanting to look at him when I was saying those things, because it was amazing, because I could say them, and I was safe in saying them, there were bailiffs and everything around.
0: I couldn't, I still couldn't really look at him. Because he had this way of making me feel like I was the mud under his boot. And even if I were to look at him, even after leaving, like I, it always took my self-confidence down like so many notches. So I I couldn't even stand to look at him. I couldn't do it because I was so afraid that I would lose that ground that I felt like I had gained, even if it was like this much confidence. Yeah. Um so I couldn't really look at him but I knew he was there. And um Yeah, it took 2 days. My mom had knitted this beautiful royal blue scarf and so I, I remember wearing that. And um you know Katy Perry's song Roar? Have yeah. you heard that song? I listened to that each time before walking back in. Oh good. And that pumped me up <laughs> to say like what I really knew I needed to say. Yeah. Um And I was angry, you know, it was, I was just, I was angry. I felt empowered. I felt like now or never, you know, just say it. And um, I had uh, a worker from child protective services with me the day, the second day of the trial, when they announced the verdict and each person that said, the word guilty. Like I heard that 13 times. Wow. Because they had the jury say it out loud and it was unanimous. And that was for the felony and kidnapping charge. Wow. And even though it got taken away because of his attorney finding a date in the discrepancy of when the law was written versus when they tried to charge him, it was a mess. And I'm really disappointed in our judicial system for missing that because to them, it may have just been another case. To me, this was my life. You know, I spent 10 years behind, you know, like metaphorical bars and he spent a year and a half. This is going to sound surprising, but I, I forgive him and I don't hold him at fault because what he was born with or developed over, you know, because his whole family was the same way. Uh, he was one of nine kids and all of the, all of the guys, like, except for the younger two, um, because of some, another, um, situation, but they all, uh, like lorded over the women in their lives, you know, and all of them, uh have the same outlook on life the same the parents too do the parents have that too yes the mother never went anywhere
1: could you just tell me though you were starting to say that he was charged with terrorizing what happened to that charge
0: I think that is one that stuck terrorizing endangerment to the welfare of a child that stuck oh stalking stalking that that stuck stalking terrorizing because he has some Class D charges on his record that prevent him from owning firearms. But um in reality, you know, his whole family has them. So he did he's not far from them.
1: <laughs> right. So basically, for all those things you mentioned, he got a year and a half in jail. Yep. And then was there probation and did that matter at all?
0: There was probation. Um, I don't remember details of it. Fortunately we haven't been in contact. Um, and I have a protection order and he lost parental rights. So he's no part of our lives.
1: How long is your protection order for?
0: Um, when they issued it, it was, um, 11 years.
1: Are you going to have to renew it? Oh yeah. You will.
0: Yeah. How long has
1: it been? How long, how long has it been?
0: Um, we've been gone eight years. One of the biggest lessons that I took away from this was listen to your gut. You know, like you, you know, and if I had done that early on and not doubted myself, if I hadn't listened to all the voices around me of like, oh, you're, you know, you're not giving him a chance or he's, um, you're being too hard on him. He's, he's great, you know, or like He's going to be a great provider. If I hadn't listened to everything else and I had just listened to my own gut and trusted myself, really got quiet and thought, I'm right. You know, <laughs> like believe in yourself, believe those feelings. Those feelings you're getting are there for a reason. The narcissist and the empath is like this perfect storm. And I don't know this for sure. It's, overgeneralizing, but I think a lot of people who abuse other people have some sort of narcissistic traits that latch onto empathic traits.
1: So do you feel that rather than we're a magnet for these guys, that they're actually out seeking someone like us? I think so. I don't
0: think it's our fault. I think it's their fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I cause because why we people who who are sensitive and people who feel compassion for other people should not need to change. Right. That's not a quality that needs to change in That's society. a good point. I think learning boundaries can help, you know, but there we do not need to numb our ability to feel for others. Right. Just because there are people out there who will abuse that. Right. And so I I still have compassion for people. I When I left that part of me that had kind of gone numb and was just surviving and just trying to get through the day, it's not gone. You know, like I have a lot of empathy still. He didn't kill that in me as much as he tried. You know, he tried to take that to use it just for him. But what I would say to others is listen to your gut. You do not need to change. If you have compassion and you have empathy, don't let that go cold and, you know, reach out because if you are in a situation where you have a feeling that you probably shouldn't be in it, you're probably right and reach out because there are people who want to help and there are people who want to help you get on the other side.
1: Like our new banner that we're taking around just says it says, say something.
0: Mm-hmm. That's the first step. I feel like that first moment, I remember someone else saying, you know, on a secret conversation and my little secret phone was, you're not happy. Are you? And I said, no. And I just started bawling. I, to admit it that first time that you could admit it, something's wrong to be able to just say that. Yeah. It's like, you're opening the floodgates. (laughs) So just say something, tell somebody. Yeah. You say
1: know, something to even
0: if you have to pass a note to a cashier at a gas station, say something. And then, could you just tell me some
1: changes that you'd like to see in Maine to make it a better situation for women who are in these situations? <laughs> the perpetrators.
0: I would love the DA to do their job, <laughs> because I was so disappointed by that outcome. It was just like, so here, here's another thing that I thought had gone wrong is. I had witnesses and the DA did not call any of them. I had journals and none of them were actually entered into evidence because they were too much evidence for them to sift through. I had four months of audio that never got into evidence because it was too much to sift through. So I basically presented everything I possibly could. They didn't use it. And then they used the wrong date and the wrong law and got that felony charge off his record That's i guess true. at some point i i lost i became defeated i felt defeated with our judicial system and i thought well i'm gonna write my book then so i'm writing a book and that book is gonna help raise awareness for psychological abuse it's for young readers but i feel like adults are gonna want to read it too you know Can you tell us for the sake of this pro- program about the book um so I have a middle grade novel in verse coming out next May with um, Nancy Paulson books published uh, with Penguin Random House and it's fiction but it's based on my own authentic experience and it basically follows a family through recovery from domestic abuse through flashbacks and it highlights psychological abuse my publisher now I feel like they're really taking, a chance with me, and I really appreciate that. And I appreciate their willingness to explore these tougher topics because they're really, really needed.
1: Um, yeah, but don't you think that I know about books for young people, and they have books on you know same sex marriage, they have books on the death of a parent, they have books on re- suicide, probably, but I don't know of any books about domestic
0: abuse. You know, kids deal with this, and that's why I feel like it's needed. And even if the reader isn't someone dealing with this. They might read the book and think that, oh, that's what she's dealing with or that's what he's dealing with. They might know someone who is experiencing this or they might see signs and spark up a conversation and ask, you know, maybe maybe this book will make a difference.
1: And it's all about vocabulary right back to the beginning of our conversation so that people can open their eyes to
0: this. Start aspect. the conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: One more thing. I just wanted one more thing I want to talk about. So just talking about how so many times people will say to me, well, it wasn't physical, you know, and um, there was there any physical abuse in the relationship?
0: Yes. And it was never to the point where I was hospitalized, but um, he would corner me you know, where I couldn't get out of a corner and yell two inches from my face. So I was often pinned and confined. He threw glasses at me at the wall. He threw an icy snowball between my eyes. So a lot of it was throwing objects at me, Um, a tea box at the back of my head, because I had accepted it from my mother. And he called me a mooch that I accepted a a box of tea, you know, so I got that thrown at me. Um, it was lemon, lemon tea by celestial seasonings. I still remember, <laughs> you know, so it's just, it was physical. Oh, he also slapped me with a ruler one time and that left a mark on my lower back.
1: Do um, you have the stereotype of a domestic abuse? Someone who's in domestic abuse is a woman with a black eye. I mean, look at what you yeah. suffered and I'm assuming that you never did have a black eye. So what would you say about, uh, the power and the damage of emotional abuse?
0: So the majority of the abuse that I faced was psychological, emotional, even as far as spiritual and, um, sexual as well. I, you know, I would consider, I would, I would say I was raped repeatedly, you know, but that didn't fly in court (laughs) because we were married. Seriously? Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. You, you, you put that to them and they would not make that as one of the charges? No.
0: Wow. No, because I was too weak to put up a fight. So therefore, because I didn't technically put up a fight, it wasn't. You know, I was too damaged. I I was numb. I was extremely numb. I wasn't present.
1: Well, this has got to be changed because that's got to start to be charged.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I'm. I'm not going to say that one form of abuse is worse than the other. But I certainly can attest to the fact that psychological abuse is really hard to shake because I'm eight years out, and when I you know sold my um, first book, I heard his voice in my head saying, "You'll never be published." And I still every day have to fight the self-doubt and the lack of confidence you know, and here I am making, you know, a meager living on my, on my work. Hopefully that will change, but I'm trying, you know, but here I am, you know, I have an MFA now and I got a 4.0 with my MFA, you know, and I'm still, you know, I I have a novel I'm editing. I, I, at my dream literary agency I guess what I'm saying is I have worked my butt off to get where I am. And yet every day, I still have to try to push his voice out of my head. And I'm eight years without actually hearing a word from him. Yet those things that he said, they just don't go away.
1: How about the the theft and robbery of 10 years of your life?
0: Yeah, I lost my 20s, you know, and I'm sad about that because I lost being able to do a lot if you think about what is lost in 10 years it's a lot and i understand that this time with covid and the pandemic and being closed at home has been extremely hard to be so secluded for a lot of people but take that and apply it to 10 years of that same seclusion coupled with someone who terrorizes you on a daily basis and that is a glimpse into what I experienced. And I'm, you know, people kind of expect you to be all better. You know, when, when you're gone, it's like, oh, well, that's not happening now. So just get over it. And, you know, even if one or two people say something to that effect, or like everything happens for a reason, or you're only given what you're strong enough to handle. It's like, you know what, heck with all of those sayings, because those aren't helpful, (laughs) you know, and The psychological factor of it, like I really have to work hard at keeping enough confidence to continue to write and illustrate and submit my work. It's a battle, it's like an uphill battle every day. So, outwardly, you know, you go to my social media accounts or my website or any of those places, and it looks like I'm confident and thriving. But inwardly, it's a battle, you know, it's a constant battle. I surround myself with things that I love, I spend time in nature, I go birding with my daughters. I do more of what makes me happy. And I feel like being in nature, like gardening, I worked in my garden all day yesterday trying to prepare it. You know, doing what you love is part of recovery. I am in therapy, but also doing my own proactive therapy by doing things that I love to do really helps. Thank you,
1: Rebecca. And thank you for listening. Find out more about our Sisterhood of Survivors and learn how you can help break the silence at FindingOurVoices.net. The music on this show is by Roan Yellowthorn of Blue Elan Records, a.k.a. my daughter, Jackie McLean. And if what we are talking about sounds familiar, if someone in your life is controlling you and or making you afraid, say something. Connect with the Sisterhood of Survivors at FindingOurVoices.net. And you can also get in touch with me directly at hello at findingourvoices.net. You can also call the 24-7 Maine Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-866-834-HELP. Tune in again to Let's Talk About It, Second Friday every month. Until then, remember, love should feel good. It's been a long, long time. It's been a long hard-